The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is fascinating because it's about proof of an afterlife. And and you may say, well, wait, the genre is about conflict healing. Well, there are so many ways that we can heal conflict in our lives by, first of all, knowing that there's something afterward. There is a proof of heaven, so to speak, or this afterlife. And also to just know that we can... be able to just really heal the conflicts in our own lives and with those who have departed. And believe it or not, we have the most incredible guest on our show. I had read his book, Proof of Heaven, after I saw him speak in right here in Orange County, California, and he's been speaking all over the country. And then I just started reading, and I'm almost finished with The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. And let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful guest, um, who is Eben Alexander, medical doctor. He has an incredible background, too. Just let me tell you a little bit about him. He has been an academic neurosurgeon for the last 25 years, including 15 years at Brigham and and Women's and the Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston. He is author of Proof of Heaven and the Map of Heaven. You can find out more about him at our website at conflicthealing.com, where you'll see his picture, his bio. We link to his website, and of course, you can see pictures of his book. And you can also go and visit him at Eben, E-B-E-N, Alexander.com. So without further ado, I could tell you much more about his impressive background, but I really want you to get a chance to hear him because he was just fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Mari. It's great to be here. Well, I, before we talk about, you know, how you got into writing and why you wrote this book, I, I would like you to tell a little bit about the story of what you went through before you even wrote these books. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, very much a conventional neuroscientist, neurosurgeon, believe the brain creates consciousness and that uh, this is all birth to death and then nothing more. Um, And then in November 2008, I developed very suddenly a severe what's called gram-negative bacterial meningitis, which is really the worst kind of meningitis you can have. It drove me into coma within about three and a half hours, and I spent seven days in coma 
before I came back to this world. My doctors uh, knew I had about a 10% chance of survival at the beginning of that week. By the end of the week, they estimated a 2% chance of survival. Mm. And at that time, if I was in that lucky 2%, uh, they predicted best-case scenario was spending a month or two in the hospital in coma, then to a nursing home finally dying in coma. That's why they recommended just stopping the antibiotics. And it was soon thereafter I started to come back to this world. Uh, And when I did, my brain was wrecked, just as they had predicted. In fact, when I first was coming back, I had no words, no language, no memories of my life before coma, etc. But I knew fully where I had just been. I had been on an extraordinary journey. The real gift of all this is the fact that I had such a severe case of meningitis, because it's really a perfect model for human death. It's just the reality is almost nobody ever comes back to tell the tale. But that's why the medical community has taken my story so seriously, because it basically takes the simplistic pseudo-explanations we have in medicine to try and explain away near-death experiences and throws them out the window. Uh, These are real experiences in a world that is very real. I could not have had any hallucination or dream or drug effect um, because my neocortex was so badly damaged. And that's uh, why I ended up uh, on this mission to understand it for my own part. I mean, that's what really drives me is I'm trying to understand it for myself understand this journey. and the, But the lessons are applicable to all of us. Exactly. I remember reading years ago, uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, also, you know, an MD, and he wrote, uh, you know, Life After Life. And I see that he has a, a wonderful recommendation for your book. He says, Eben Alexander proves to us once again that experience is the greatest source of knowledge, relying on his own near-death experience and those of others who have written to him. He takes from the wisdom of the Greek philosophers through to modern medical researchers to give us an overview of that mysterious place known as the afterlife. And it, you know, he says it's a courageous book that tackles the question of life after life with science, philosophy, and the heart-rendering experience of other people who've gone to the other side. And I think what's so fascinating and so wonderful is that you have been one of the skeptics, and you are, you know, obviously a neurosurgeon, so you have the credibility to express what happened to you, not only on the the level that you experienced, but really the medical level and, and the brain understanding of the brain. I think it's it just is so incredible. Well, I think that is, that is um, that in many ways is true. Uh, it turns out Dr. Moody uh, is one of the uh, most uh, ardent, true skeptics, a true open-minded skeptic of anyone I have ever met. Yeah. Uh, it has taken him decades in all of this beautiful work that he's done around near-death experiences to even get to a point where he he now thinks that they provide uh, pretty clear-cut evidence that the afterlife is absolutely real. Yes. So he's, he's a wonderful skeptic. And in fact, I had a lot of true open-minded skeptics in the form of my colleagues, my older son who was majoring in neuroscience, um, and others interested in consciousness who helped me a lot uh, with the book Proof of Heaven uh, because I was my own worst skeptic at the get-go. I thought it was all <laughs> way too real to be real. And so I was seeking some kind of a brain-based mechanism. 
but that's as our important proof of heaven is why we got to a point in working with colleagues uh, deeply interested in consciousness where we came to realize that these experiences seem too real to be real because they are really occurring in a realm that is outside the physical universe. Amazing, amazing. So in your first book, you really explained all of this, basically what you had explained and then what you went through. Now, how about this new book, The Map of Heaven? What what inspired you to, to write these books? Well, as you can imagine, a near-death experience will change one forever. And I was very much changed by the experience itself. But I kept defaulting down to my prior mindset of brain creates consciousness, trying to find a way to explain it in my earlier way of thinking. And and again, that was the tremendous gift here. Uh, in, in many ways, my personal journey is very much like the journey of our modern thinking and modern science. And Map of Heaven is really about uh, kind of the expansion of my personal understanding of the scientific aspects of this. And uh, you really have to go back to put this in perspective. Uh, and that's why in the book Map of Heaven, I take us all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and to other early uh, scholars who studied uh, these kind of experiences, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the right. writings in the Bible, etc. And the reason is that one thing that struck me tremendously in my own study of this uh, in the months after my returning from coma are the similarities. The similarities are really stunning. You can go back and read reports of religious mystics and prophets and of, of uh, say, Plato's account of Ur, the Armenian soldier who had a near-death experience. Uh, you know, these are events that occurred uh, 2,300 years ago, right. and yet they sound for all the world. When you, when you really get into it, they sound like a modern near-death experience. And the reason is that realm is not changing. That's a constant feature. And this is not just about humanity. I mean, this is a, a, really a way of looking at consciousness as fundamental in the universe. And what I predict, and I, I explain this a lot more fully in the book Map of Heaven, um, there's a lot of uh, the scientific community, especially those who are deeply into the study of brain, mind, and consciousness, who are very far along this pathway of understanding. This is all about a complete shift in our worldview that is upon us. And that shift has to do with realizing that the pure scientific materialism, like I used to worship before my coma, is about to go extinct. And the reason is that pure materialism, when I say that, what I mean is the, the science and neuroscience that says that the brain and consciousness, uh, it's just the whirling of the subatomic particles following natural laws that gives an illusion of consciousness. That's why that modern neuroscience says we have no free will, because we're all automatons in that view. We're simply following the whirlings of the, you know, the particles, the uh, atoms, molecules in our brain and nothing more. My journey showed me very clearly that's completely backwards. Mm. That we're each and every one of us eternal spiritual beings, that in fact the brain is not the creator of consciousness, but it reduces it. It's a filter, a reducing valve. And this is a, mo a very modern scientific view that is supplanting the conventional view of brain creates consciousness, but it's not a new idea. The filter theories uh, came out from the likes of William James, Frederick Meyer, other great thinkers at the end of the 19th century who saw plenty of evidence that some aspect of personality survives the death of the physical body and brain. 
And that is what modern science is waking up to now in a very powerful way. It's going to change the way all of us think and view ourselves. Right. So so the concept of the soul, is that can you kind of explain that? Is that kind of what you're talking about? That that consciousness or that that essence that you've just been describing, is that the soul? Yes, well, it turns out that our very consciousness, you know, that part of us that is aware of existing, of self, uh, aware of the internal reality of our bodies and of the external reality outside of us, that part is the essence of that infinitely powered consciousness. Now, I would say yes, saying that that is soul is a very fair thing to say. Uh, Soul is something that becomes much more obvious, especially, say, at the death of the physical body and brain, uh, when our awareness actually becomes much greater, not much less. And, of course, my conventional neuroscientific thinking was that when the brain dies, that's the end, that it all flickers out into nothingness. That, of course, is why, as I tell the story in Proof of Heaven, when I went from that earthworm eye view, that primitive, coarse, unresponsive beginning place in my coma journey, uh, you know, the me before coma would have said the next step was a state of nothingness, and just the opposite happened. It was like the blinders coming off and coming to a much higher awareness. This is what near-death experiences have been trying to tell us for thousands of years, and yet our modern materialistic science refuses to accept that truth, even though there are millions and millions of cases out there that that put this in proper perspective. Another important concept is that of non-local consciousness, and that is that we can know things beyond the ken of our physical senses, you know, beyond what we can see with the eyes, hear with the ears, and that also is part of modern scientific understanding of consciousness. And when you start realizing that things like telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, after-death communications, past life memories in children, and all the evidence for reincarnation are all very real, and then we just have to try and explain what they mean, what they're telling us, then you start to realize how this whole scientific view of the world is shifting dramatically. It's amazing to me. I know I did a, a workshop with Dr. Brian Weiss, who I'm sure you know of as well, because he he was one that also was a skeptic until he started doing some uh, hypnotherapy on a nurse who had a, a problem with her swallowing. And when he did the hypnotherapy to take her back to see what it was in her childhood that maybe caused her to have this problem, she jumped back you know, to another lifetime, right. you know. So. Yeah, it's a beautiful the way he was wise enough to see what was going on there and then to turn that into, um, you know, a modern scientific way of looking at consciousness and soul and what our journeys are all about. Yeah, it's amazing. So would you say that you were spiritual or religious before all this happened to you, and has that changed how you think about things? Well, I had grown up in in a a family in North Carolina. My father was the head of a neurosurgical training program, so he was very scientific. He was also very religious. Um, He believed in God. He always knew that when he operated on a patient and the patient did well, it was God who really did the work, and his part as a neurosurgeon was very small. And so I wanted to believe in all that. Uh, you know, I was a child of the 60s and 70s. Right. I always knew that science is the pathway toward truth. <laughs> right. I now realize, though, I'm much more of a scientist than I've ever been. But I also realize that that science that I worshipped before, that purely materialistic uh, 
form of science that denies the reality of, of consciousness, soul, or spirit, is completely wrong. And that our current science of today is in the process of expanding tremendously, uh, expanding its borders to fully encompass the reality of consciousness as fundamental, which, of course, is what quantum mechanics was trying to tell us 100 years ago, just that we've been very slow on the uptake. Yeah. But this is really all about a shift in worldview and in our scientific understanding of who we are that is going to basically create a far better world for all of us. Because when we realize we're eternal spiritual beings, that the only thing that matters in that realm is love and unconditional love and showing love and compassion and forgiveness and, and mercy on all fellow beings, that that is actually a rule of that underlying fabric of all reality. And that's why we're here in this soul school to learn these lessons, and that God gives us that free will to make the choices. But we have a much cleaner pathway towards that ascendance, towards oneness with the divine, if we are willing to manifest that love and love ourselves and love others, uh, just as the creative source that we meet and hear about so much in near-death experiences and other similar spiritually transformative experiences. Um, that is what we're here to do and learn. And it's so beautiful, and I'm thinking about you as such a wonderful leader and sharing your story. And, you know, there are other physicians that are also on basically on the bandwagon with this kind of consciousness, like Larry, Dr. Larry Dossey, who is also an MD, and Alan Hamilton, and yes. Deepak Chopra. I mean, we've got these, and, and I think that is what is so inspiring for me, that you are men of science, you have worked so hard, and there are women doctors also that have been in, very much involved in this movement, but you've been the writers about this, and I think this is what is so incredible. I'm wondering, you know, I put my ex-husband through medical school at University of Virginia Medical School, and I remember when he was in medical school, they weren't talking about this kind of stuff at all. It was all science, and anything that basically was like this was poo-pooed at the time. Right. Although, um, what is her name, whose husband died? She wrote... Um, Oh, about death and dying, a physician. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Oh, yeah, she Kubler -Ross. Yes, she was supposed to come and speak when he was in medical school, and actually the day she was supposed to speak, her husband died. Oh, my and, gosh. Yeah, it was really, and but I remember reading her book, you know, on death and dying, and yes. so she was getting into that kind of a, a thought, but a lot of people were not really open to that. A lot of the professors at the medical school were not really open to that. It was like, when you die, you die, that's it. You know, right. And well, you're exactly right. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was probably one of the greatest uh, leaders of the 20th century in terms of starting uh, this thinking. You know, she and Raymond Moody. Kind yes. of interesting, just as a sideline, how much of it passes through Charlottesville. Yeah. <laughs> just about all these people have spent some time in Charlottesville at UVA. Yeah. Uh, I do some work there now, and... Uh, Wonderful the place. Perceptual studies there is a tremendous leader in non-local consciousness studies in the scientific world. It must have been Thomas Jefferson's influence. I, 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 <laughs> I often tell people I believe that Thomas Jefferson's uh, soul is a big part of the energy going into all this now. In fact, in Proof of Heaven, 
before it came out in the manuscript, I had a section in there about this being the quarter millennium echo of what Jefferson and Madison and Adams were doing for individual liberties in kind of a political sense. Yes. And now we're trying to set souls free in a much bigger way about the, the freedom of consciousness and of that infinitely loving power into this world. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I remember living there, and people would talk about Thomas Jefferson as if he was still alive. So I think you're right. I felt it whenever I'd go to Monticello. I would feel his energy. So I, I do, too. I, I really know. believe he's part of it all. Yeah, that's amazing. What kind of research and ideas that you did, what, what most inspired you or really surprised you? Was there any surprises when you were doing that research? Well, I would say a, a lot of it is, is shocking and surprising. I mean, for yeah. example, I really had no idea about the scientific evidence behind non-local consciousness Mm -hmm. and uh, certainly some really striking things like the past life memories in children. Yes. Um, You know, University of Virginia, Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker, uh, they've studied more than 4,000 cases of uh, past life memories in children, many of which have really no other explanation at all. Right. These are shocking cases uh, because they completely upend that simplistic uh, materialist science view of brain creates consciousness and, you know, our whole existence ends at death. They just thrash that. Um, and it's really, you know, what you have out there, you have debunkers and deniers who simply uh, ignore all this and deny it because they say it can't be because it doesn't fit their teeny little limited worldview. Right. Uh, you know, I was one of those before. <laughs> I didn't pay much attention to any of this. Right. I was right. so convinced that the brain creates consciousness. Uh, and yet I had struggled for a long time, as I told you earlier, yeah. uh, with my own faith. Um, I wanted to believe, as my father did, but I also knew that science was the real pathway. And I must say that uh, since all this happened to me and since I've gotten into the science of it, I've come to be really shocked repeatedly over the power of what is out there. And I think what is going to happen with this world, it will be unrecognizable, the kind of changes that these uh, these powers that are within our consciousness, uh, as we learn how to use them and how to manifest them uh, on a routine basis, it really will change this world in ways we cannot possibly imagine. And that is all something that's happening now. Dr. Alexander, do you think this is changing the way medicine is practiced? I mean, I'm thinking of um, all of the doctors that are like Deepak Chopra. He's kind of practicing, but not really like he used to. How about you? Are you practicing medicine at all anymore? Well, it it turns out that I give about four or five talks a week now. I've been giving (laughs) talks on this since two years before the book came out. Yeah, and uh, you cannot do neurosurgery part time. Right. So this has uh, taken over all my patient care. I was last able to see patients uh, in June of, of 2012, right before the book came out. But things were just getting so busy, I could not do it justice. I cannot do that part time. Well, I think but, this is your dharma now, anyway. Well, it is definitely my <laughs> dharma, and the reality is, medicine is changing. It's shifting. Yes. It's slow, um, but. I've been asked to speak at a lot of medical schools and nursing schools, uh, surgical groups. Uh, I mean, a lot of doctors get this, and I, I would put it out there. I think I did when I was uh, out there in uh, Mission, Viejo. Mission Viejo. That yeah. you know, the nurses have always kind of gotten this because they're usually there when a patient makes a transition. You know, right. when a patient body dies, 
it's the nurses who are right there uh, holding everybody together. And so the nurses see evidence of the soul passing. They see things happen that have no explanation from our simplistic little materialist model. And so the nurses usually do get it. Um, I can speak for myself. As a doctor, I was a little slow on the uptake, but you know, after a, a major thumping in the form of my meningitis, yes, that sent me on a pathway to start to get it. And a lot more doctors, I believe, are understanding this. And part of my personal mission is to really help the medical profession to step up to this because it's a beautiful gift to each of us from patients who die and share that experience with us if we're open enough to hear what they have to say. And that's patients who die and are resuscitated or those who die and pass on. Um, They often share beautiful gifts that show the reality of this, of the of the afterlife. Yes. And that is one thing I want to do is help wake up the medical profession so we can take the lid off and let those hundreds of millions of souls around this world who have this kind of story to tell, let them tell their stories. That's what will change this world. And, and how beautiful when you're with families that are going through this death and dying, for you to be able to share that with families. What a gift that is so that they don't feel so devastated. Well, I I think it it is a gift. And, of course, those who are departing this world also give us a beautiful gift. Yes. And that's another part of how I would like to change this world. We need to come to know as a culture that we are eternal spiritual beings, that we come back in multiple incarnations in this ascendance towards oneness with the divine that has everything to do with love and caring for others. And uh, uh, hospice, I think, should follow the model of birthing centers and treat yes. death more as the, the exciting adventure and transition for the soul that it is to show that our connectedness with our loved ones does not end with the death of a physical body. Um, we actually have great sources of wisdom uh, in deep consciousness. That's why a lot of my work now uh, has to do with meditation, and I get into that in in Map of Heaven, especially in the appendix to Map of Heaven, Yes, where I talk about my work with sacred acoustics and offering up auditory means for people to get into deep transcendental conscious states, and this uh, is something that helps us tremendously. Yeah, I remember you talking about the, the, the sounds that you heard when you were on, you know, on the other side, that the beautiful sounds that you heard. So that would be, I, I know that there are some people that are trying to put together music that is similar to that. And, you know, what would you say about that? Would you well, say I that? think the music uh, is uh, of, of crucial importance. I mean, for one thing, as I point out in the book Map of Heaven, the um Sound was, at least what I remember as sound from the experience, was something that was, uh, throughout the journey, was instrumental in my being able to transition. I mean, you might wonder, how does a soul traverse those multiple levels uh, in those spiritual realms in ascendance towards oneness with the divine? It turns out that sound, vibration, frequency, music, chants, hymns, uh, we hear that all through that journey. For me, that slowly spinning white light that approached me and rescued me from the earth where my view, which I think that primitive 
uh, state of consciousness was the best consciousness my physical brain could muster soaking in pus. And that spinning white light came with a perfect musical melody. Mm-hmm. Likewise, in that lovely idyllic valley, that ultra-real valley where everything was alive and fertile and growing and the butterflies and the flowers and blossoms and the soaring choirs of angelic beings above, the music coming down from those angelic choirs provided yet another portal. So the music or vibration was what allowed me to ascend to higher and higher levels, even to the the, the highest level that I reached, that core realm, infinite inky blackness outside of all of infinity and eternity, was filled with that loving sound of the Aum, that rich, deep resonance. Mm. In fact, that's what I called that all-loving deity when I came back to this world, because for me, the word God was a puny little human word. It didn't do justice to what I had witnessed there. I mean, a being far beyond any kind of description, beyond any kind of of ability to convey in our earthly language, uh, that is exactly what was there, was that Aum. And the Aum is... Uh, Something, of course, uh, people told me many months later how that had to do with certain religious and meditative practices. But to me, it was part of what I brought back. It was kind of like the flower in your pocket that comes from uh, those very magical and distant and ultra-real spiritual worlds when you come back to this world. I know. So music so, and vibration and frequency are crucial in understanding this. I, wonderful. Well, we are just out of time. I am can't wait to finish this book, The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. And I love the first book, Proof of Heaven, and I'm so thrilled that you were able to come on our show. We will just keep watching you and hope that you'll, we'll be having you back for our, your next book, too. So thank you so much, Dr. Eben Alexander, M.D., and just give your website, and it's time to go. Okay, it's Eben Alexander, that's E-B as in Baker, E-N Alexander dot com, and thank you very much for having me. And I thank you so much, and keep up the wonderful work. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.